Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Like a lot of Twitter users, comedian Aparna Nancherla sometimes gets pretty harsh reactions to what she tweets. And sometimes she wants to know who's saying this stuff. That is, until she actually looks. Like one time someone wrote me something really mean and then I went to their page and he was like, proud father of two. And he was like with his daughters. And I was like so sad that this like, you know, world's number one dad took the time to be like, you suck. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Aparna Nancherla about the competing forces of anxiety and depression and how they may not actually be competing anymore, at least in her head. I guess they've been like two solo acts in my head and they're finally like, you know, we should do something together. (laughs) (laughs) She and I will discuss her new comedy album, just putting it out there. Then later, I'll talk with Clams Casino. His first solo album, 32 Levels, is coming out this month. We'll talk about his unique take on hip-hop production and how it wasn't always easy to get the right people to listen. I would say probably one out of, I don't know how many would respond, one out of 10, one out of 20, you know, it's always different, but it was definitely just a numbers game and just trying to get as many emails, addresses as I could. And I'll tell you about my love affair with a rubber shark. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Some people were born to be a comedian. A partner on Charla maybe wasn't one of those people. She wasn't even a performer of any kind when she got into comedy. She was just trying to find something to do with her life. And she also had some stuff she'd written down. Her first time out right after college, it went well. So she stuck with it. Now she's a rising star with her first album just putting it out there on the prestigious indie label Secretly Canadian. Here's a bit of the record. Aparna's been traveling to perform a lot lately, including a trip to Australia. And when she got there, the customs agent was kind of surprised that she was a comic. And then, basically half convinced, uh, he suggested that she check out one of his favorite comics from Australia. That's always a good sign when you tell someone what you do and they're just like, here's a better version of you, probably. Good luck with your dreams. Like, if I had put down doctor, would he have been like, oh, have you heard of Dr. Phil? You should check him out. Probably change more lives than you with his timeless wisdom and no-nonsense jabs. No, pardon on Charlie. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jesse. So were you a performer of any kind when you were... I mean, maybe I should, for the record, say that I was in elementary school plays and two middle school musicals. Oh, what music middle school musicals were you in? I was in uh, Oliver and Bye Bye Birdie. Wow, what did you play in <laughs> Oliver? A pickpocket. Oh, pickpocket number seven. Oh, well, you've got a pickpocket, yeah. too. Yeah, you do. <laughs> if you want to do Oliver. <laughs> You need your pickpocket. But you didn't, you weren't desirous of, like, I think that there are a lot of performers and especially a lot of comics mm-hmm. who get into comedy because they realize at some point in adolescence that they like performing because it gives them maybe a social interaction that they have control over. Right. But also just sort of positive attention. No, very much so, yeah. And I definitely think I found that it fulfilled that for me, but I didn't realize it was something anyone could do until a lot later than maybe most people. Why why was that? I think I as a kid I was kind of sheltered and I feel like I didn't intake a lot of pop culture stuff that a lot of people a lot of other people did. So I think I just like didn't, you know, didn't watch Saturday Night Live, didn't see Mr. Show, like didn't see all these things that might have like pinpointed other people's interest and so I think I I read a lot and I I lived a lot in my head and I think 
those two things, it's like hard to maybe realize you're a funny person if you're like keep to yourself a lot because <laughs> yeah. it requires an audience. Right. It's a, so, <laughs> is a fundamentally social act. Yes. yes. Let's let's hear some more comedy from my guest, Aparna Nancharla. She lives in New York City. Uh, one thing about living in New York City that is a little weird is that there are actual models, like real-life models, everywhere in actual life. Models, to me, feel like self-esteem pickpockets. <laughs> like, they're fine at a distance... But then you directly walk by one, and you're just like, no. I have nothing. (laughs) Even my personality's the wrong shape. (laughs) I feel like... um... There are a lot of comics who might be great comics who struggle with uh, like Twitter, for example, Mm. because they have a lot of perspective and a funny way of presenting themselves and, uh, you know, a strong voice and so on and so forth. But they're just not that into jokes. Right. And I think that you are very unusual in that you are a comic with a really strong perspective and performance style and so on and so forth, who also clearly just, like, really gets something out of writing a two-sentence joke. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know what it is about Twitter because I feel like, you know, it kind of evolved for me because when I first got on it, I was sort of just doing what everyone else was doing and just giving little updates throughout my day. Um, and then I guess I saw other people use it for jokes and, and I, I, when I started stand up, I had some shorter one liners that I liked writing. So I think I just sort of went more in that direction of being like, oh, you can write lots of these all the time (laughs) and people will read them. So do that. Do you sit there and I, I do this sometimes, but I rarely have the patience, but. Uh, would you sit there and like think and you're moving you're moving words around you're like no this is the funniest word i want to move this one to the end i want to yeah i'll definitely um i'll definitely workshop tweets sometimes but it kind of <laughs> well, the stakes are pretty high on twitter you want to work something out before you yeah you don't want to just throw it out there uh willy-nilly but i it kind of depends like if i'm traveling and I have, like, a lot of time where I can just check my phone. I'll be more likely to kind of sit down and fiddle with it. Whereas if I'm sort of on the go, I'll just, like, fire off a thought and then post it. I obsess over how many – I used to, oh, I was about stats. to say stars, but now hearts. Right. Now it's hearts. I still call them star points in my head. <laughs> star points. Yeah. Ooh, that makes them sound more exciting. And then if somebody wants to pick a fight with me on Twitter, I can't deal with it. Like recently someone sent me a trolley email mm-hmm. and then I found myself it, – it wasn't even the content of the email. I found myself like pers- going down the rabbit hole yes. of that person and their life. Right. How do you feel when that happens? Does it? Some people are better at dealing with it than others. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm always. I always will have a level of sensitivity where when I read something that's at all angry or reactive, I will have an emotional response to it. But now I'm better at sort of being like, okay, and not necessarily like uh, my first impulse to like want to address them immediately. Like I can move past it pretty quickly, and I feel like. No troll has ever said to me something I haven't already thought about myself. <laughs> yeah. So I think in some ways it's like the entry button. <laughs> I'm like, great, you opened that tab again. <laughs> just in your Google Chrome, yeah, yeah. there's one folder of bookmarks right. that's just labeled things I'm uncomfortable yeah. with. Yeah. Pain points. Pain points. Mm. Like it's almost it almost feels like you want to do like an inside the actor's studio with your troll and be like, "What made you <laughs> write this about me?" <laughs> but but oftentimes I think I'll be sadder if it seems more like a real person versus, you know, just like a 
someone who's just trying to get reactions because I'm like, like one time someone wrote me something really mean and then I went to their page and he was like, proud father of two. And he was like with his <laughs> daughters and I was like so sad that this like, you know, world's number one dad took the time to be like, you suck. <laughs> I imagine that Twitter has also changed your career to some extent. I mean, you're you're so wonderful at it. Oh, thanks. You're a par napkin on Twitter. That's right. And it seems like that is a proving ground for comics and especially comedy writers these days. Yeah, I mean, I it definitely has been indispensable. I think in career opportunities, whether it was submitting for a writing job or just like forming a relationship with someone I respect. Um, it's helped me do both those things. And I think I still have a level of disbelief with it where, you know, like people will be like, oh, I really love your Twitter. And I still have this level of removal where when I post stuff, I forget that people are reading it. <laughs> <laughs> I still just think of it as this like vacuum. Um, I don't know, like in like kind of in Ghostbusters, but that big chamber where they put all the ghosts. <laughs> I like whatever I have a tweet, I'm like, oh, just shove it into the chamber. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with comedian Aparna Nancherla. She's got a new comedy album out called Just Putting It Out There. I want to ask you about Totally Biased, a show yeah. on FX that, mm-hmm. you, uh, that you worked on while it was on TV. It was a great show that I, I really loved. But one, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about it was that uh, W. Kamau Bell, who uh, was the host and, and creator of the show and the other folks behind the show, mm-hmm. brought together a writing staff of really strong voices, mostly stand-up comics, right? almost all from uh, groups that are drastically underrepresented in comedy writing squads. Yes, And one of the interesting things to me about that experiment was it was this incredible batch of voices. Maybe it was mostly a bunch of people who had never made a TV show before. Yeah. And in some ways, as a show, it didn't end up working. And the show got canceled not long after it went daily. Yes. Um, Although there was tons of, as I said, I love the show. But also, it was the entry point for a ton of brilliant people who now are working all over right. everywhere. Yeah. Like it did that thing that you're like, you say like, Oh, if just somebody was out there looking for voices that aren't represented, it would work. And it right. was like, Oh, it kind of did. Yeah. And I think being in that job, like I remember towards when the end of when it got pulled, I think you know, it it had been a big jump from weekly to daily between season one and season two. And I think it, the pace just got a lot more frenetic and we didn't quite get our bearings before they canceled the show. So I think at the end, people were feeling a little bit disenchanted about the whole thing. But then looking back at it, I think you're very right in saying that it's it opened doors for so many people. It opened doors for like similar shows. And I guess that's the thing with television and media. It's like you don't have to be around for 10 years to, like, change the landscape. The show was uh, very much about especially race, but also the ways that – because Kamau is Mm African-American. But also about the other ways that marginalized groups participate in America. Yes, you know, uh, my friend Guy Branham was on the show, mm-hmm. and he's white and gay and was yeah. did some amazing pieces about what that's like. Right. And, you know, you were on camera. Hari Kondabalu was on camera. Mm-hmm. Lots of great work. Did being in a group like that, rather than what almost every group of comedy people is, whether it's the people hanging out at the bar at a stand-up show or whatever, yeah, uh, which are almost always going to be just like at least like half white dudes. Right. Did that change the way that you thought about yourself in your own comedy? I think so. I mean, it was also my first writing job. So I think it was interesting to have that be my first writer's room because it is it was unlike any other writer's room I've been in since. Um, So I think it in that sense, it was like, oh, this is what happens when you put a diverse group of people in a room together. And these are the kind of ideas and dialogues you can have. And I think it just 
I've been in rooms since then where, you know, they're still very progressive, but there will be certain areas where, you know, whether it's like around trans people or something where people still seem a little behind the times. And felt like in that room there was someone to speak to most other groups. I heard from uh, an acquaintance about being in a situation like that, writing on an award show Mm -hmm. where someone who is... Uh, you know, one of her great heroes yes. was hosting the show and was just not like, like just not getting it yeah. about something. Yes. Um, I'm trying to get as much of this, make this as clear as possible right. without, right. without <laughs> which, giving without away without any. Betraying somebody else. But, um, uh, but, you know, there was just, you know, it was somebody that she like loved and admired and, right. you know, was a reason that she was a, comedian yes who was not getting something yeah and she was a junior voice in the room Mm -hmm. and then the question is like to what extent can i be the person who says like this is weird right because it go it can go either way when um when you're picking those battles like you can stand up for it and sort of change people's minds like um, I, my friend, I think Eliza Skinner said recently made a point of like, oftentimes if you're gonna sort of maybe say, oh, maybe this isn't the best way to do this joke or something, or sort of the best way to offer that sort of opinion is to replace it with another joke or give some alternative rather than just shooting down the other thing, because then you're kind of like, well, no, but how about this? Have you have you faced that issue yourself? Sometimes I feel like um, even a totally biased, I think there was like a, some of us like uh, women writers like wrote this piece together about, I don't know, I think it was making fun of like uh, there was like a yo- yogurt for men that was out or something. <laughs> um, and we were kind of like, oh, that, you know, it's traditionally been a female branded product. And like all the guys in the room were like, really, that's a thing. And it was like so strange to have to explain like this huge marketing thing that it's like we were so surprised they didn't know but it's like interesting to see how sometimes if you're not part of a group you don't pay attention to well like i mean one of the ambitions of that show relative to you know whatever stephen colbert yeah right now or something like that and this is not about not liking stephen colbert yeah who's a wonderful brilliant genius right but like is that you know when your ambition is to represent a bunch of people who haven't been represented that mm-hmm. much, like that's a lot of points of views to get into one television yes. show. And, you know, I think often it's a lot easier to just be like, we're for everybody where we're for everybody means we're for white dudes like Ye- this host. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, even with Totally Bias, we would get pretty much on a lot of pieces, we would get backlash from you know, maybe some more extreme voices of whatever group we were talking about where they were like, but you didn't cover this and this. So it, we, I think people are always still like, but what about this? Like about everything really? Because you can. So I think you have to, yeah, you have to pick your battles of, you're like, well, what are what is the bigger issue we're trying to make? Because you can pick apart anything really. I, I want to play another clip from Aparna Nancharla's new album, so uh, Aparna lived in L.A. for a time, now lives in New York, and uh, did what a lot of uh, performers in L.A. do, took a miscellaneous acting class. So the class is, in, in an effort to think about, like, uh, castability or something, the class is, the class is going around the room uh, saying which actor every class member looks like. And when it gets to Aparna, of course, Mindy Kaling, uh, and Aziz Ansari have been suggested, they being the two famous people uh, in her broad ethnic group. After that, they kind of start struggling, and then things start to get weird. But then someone went, science! <laughs> That's not even a person! Like everyone was just like, we can't. Let's just free associate now. Balloon. Go kart. Hungry. It's like... But they said science, and immediately everyone else in the class was just like, oh yeah, I see it. What? What do you see? Your bigotry? 
You're shaking your head no. I'm going to shake my I shake my head oh, yes. yes. No, I just I like I remember that class every time I hear that story. I'm like, oh man, so ridiculous. I mean, it is a really brutal thing about especially acting. Yeah. That you know, you are cast by like people who are just brutally categorizing you yes. with the just the grossest, basest, worst parts of humanity as their guide. Like just Right, like the broadest strokes and all the th- basically like all the adjectives in kindergarten where you're like not supposed to point out on someone, that's like what they use to cast you. Yeah, exactly. And I mean and I think that um you know, for white people who are, you know, often culturally, their race is seen as neutral right. in American culture. That can basically just means that people tell you everything that's ugly or weird looking about you. Yes. Um, and then you're supposed to, like, use that. <laughs> but if you're not white, if you don't, if you haven't been given that gift by our culture, yeah, then you are also saddled with all this race baggage as well. Right. And I feel like... It's also weird in that, like, race is can be ambiguous and then trying to shoehorn that ambiguity into these boxes is often problematic. I mean, at the heart of it, stand-up is a kind of self-representation. It's kind of like yeah. you go up on stage and say – often you say – I know what you're thinking. This is what I look like. You know what I mean? But then you say, and this is who I am. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'll see, it's like anytime a stand-up opens with a joke like that, where it's like something immediately representative of what they look like or sound like, and the audience like always reacts because I think it's so accessible. But I think, I don't know, I just find it more interesting when people... Don't like sort of go for that second layer rather than what's immediately there. I'll continue my conversation with Aparna Nancherla after a break. We'll talk about the role her anxiety and depression play in her comedy. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Blink, helping homeowners and renters keep an eye on what's happening at home while they're away. Blink's battery-powered high-definition video cameras use motion sensors to deliver instant video alerts right to your smartphone or check in anytime with live view. Cameras can be placed almost anywhere in your home, and installation is super easy, too. Learn more at BlinkForHome.com. Get 10% off your order with the promo code BLINKNPR. Hey guys, this is Adam Conover. You may know me from my true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything. Well, guess what? Now we're doing a podcast version right here on Maximum Fun. What we do is we take all the interesting, fascinating experts that we talk to for just a couple minutes on the show, and we sit with them for an entire podcast, really going deep and getting into the fascinating details of their work. Find Adam Ruins Everything wherever you get your podcasts or at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Aparna Nancherla. She's a writer and comedian. She's got a new album out this month. It's called Just Putting It Out There. You talk a little bit on the album about uh, how anxiety affects your mm-hmm. life. Did you tell me like how it manifests for you and, and what it means for you? Well, for me, I feel like it's the flip side of depression, but also I feel like they kind of feed into each other weirdly, even though they're sort of opposites. But mine is very much around performance anxiety just in day-to-day life not just like on stage and then like disappointing people so give give me an example of, of what that means um well like even to say like showing up for this interview like I would say my anxiety would be that I won't be you know like charming enough or I won't come up with the right anecdotes And it's like, even if I do okay, like, it'll be like, but it wasn't good enough. And then I'll have the anxiety of that going in. So a lot of times that'll just self-sabotage a little bit. You're doing a great job. I want to be abundantly clear of what a great job you're doing. You're not self If you're self-sabotaging, you're doing a terrible job of that. I was just fishing. (laughs) (laughs) 
How is that different for you when you're getting ready to go on stage? I think the thing that is tricky with comedy is like sometimes you will be on top of your game, but just that audience won't particularly understand you. So then it's like you kind of have to decide whether making them laugh is more important to you or you sticking to what you think is funny is more important to you. There are a lot of comics who believe very deeply Mm -hmm. that the goal of a comedian is to get the audience to laugh, and a great comedian is one who can get any audience to laugh. Yeah, I, I feel like I've heard that a lot, and I feel like the longer I do comedy, the more I disagree with that. <laughs> Because to me, that's like saying if you're a good musician, everyone should like your music. And I think comedy is like music. Like there are different kinds and not everyone is going to understand every kind. I think if you're going for sort of broad stroke stuff or even sort of more primitive level, like you laugh from a funny face or something, then yes, I think everyone is triggered to laugh. But I think if you're doing something more stylistic or around like a cultural reference point, then that is a little bit ludicrous to say everyone should be able to get it. Does anxiety manifest for you the same way when you are performing and you have an act and so on and so forth relative to when you are like, you know, whatever, going to a birthday party or something like that? No. Yeah. No, it'll be like two different kinds of anxiety, but The weird thing now is like sometimes my anxiety will come around like depression where it's like, will you be too depressed to (laughs) enjoy this Wait, you have depression-related anxiety? Yes. Oh, gee whiz. I know. It's real bad. (laughs) I guess they're collaborating. (laughs) As disorders. <laughs> sort of like a, a traveling Wilburys of yeah. mental illness. I guess they've been like two solo acts in my head and they're finally like, you know, we should do something together. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I want to I play another clip from my guest Aparna Nancharla's new album. Um, well, let's, let's talk about the weather. It happens to be raining mm-hmm. the day that uh, Aparna recorded the record. I love rainy weather. I love when it's gray and cold and and windy. Because for me, it reminds me why I got in the whole depression game. (laughs) Like, it keeps me grounded. I like when it's miserable outside because I feel like as a depressive, I can turn to any random optimist on the street and just be like, hey, you're in my world now. Then I offer them some Zoloft because I'm not a monster. <laughs> I uh, no, I do suffer from depression, and a lot of times I do I do feel sad for no reason. But then I remember some of the reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you have a podcast about depression. Yeah. And as I said, you know, it's something that you talk about a lot in your act. Mm-hmm. Did you decide at some point that you were going to do that beyond just something as a setup that's like, oh, I'm I'm a nervous person or something like that? Yeah, I think it's just something that has been – I've been able to um, address more in my life. So in that sense, I've, I've been more interested in talking about it and it also feels like something that – people don't talk about generally on a surface level um, in day-to-day conversation because it like bums people out. So I guess it's like, I'm like, well, then wherever there is a platform to talk about it, I want to use that. There's also something I, I think about the fact that people don't talk about it that makes it uh, an exciting place to go for comedy yeah. on stage. Yeah, and, you know, there are so many comics who have opened that door with, the, like, Maria Bamford or Mark Marin, where they, they do talk about a lot about mental illness. And I think it's not only that willingness to go to those places, but also 
I feel like sometimes it can be sort of cathartic to hear people relating to something harder you're going through rather than just like how you feel about sandwiches or something. Well, Aparna, I'm so grateful to uh, that you took the time to come be on Bullseye. It was really oh great to goodness. get to talk Thank to you. Thank you for interviewing me. What a fun interview. Aparna Nancherla's new album is called Just Putting It Out There. It's out now. She's also appearing at Max Fun Con East, our big conference in the Poconos. Eh, conference maybe is the wrong word. Anyway, you can find more information at maxfuncon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Clams Casino's beats started percolating out over the Internet about five years ago, they seemed like they came from an alternate Earth. They were atmospheric and beautiful, almost soothing, but also immediately recognizable as hip-hop. They were a little bit scary, too. Something like if the RZA was pulling his samples from binaural meditation music instead of Memphis Soul. At the time, Clams Casino was working full-time at a hospital, just graduated from physical therapy school. Five years later, things have changed. He's made records with ASAP Rocky, FKA Twigs, and The Weeknd, and his sound has been immensely influential across the pop landscape. His first solo LP is called 32 Levels. Here's a bit of a track from it called Blast. Clams Casino, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, thank you. Yep, thanks for having me. So when you first started making beats, uh, who did you copy? Who who did you want to sound like? Uh, well, that's funny that you mentioned RZA already because that's probably one of the biggest influences as a producer uh, for me, especially, you know, a hip-hop producer. So he was a big one um, just as far as uh, how I learned about textural techniques and just how he kind of created his own world uh, in hip-hop and stuff. And that was probably, I would say, one of the biggest influences for sure when I started making beats for the first time. There is something about the way that those Wu-Tang records really sound like, besides the fact that there's all this uh, all this slang and all this sort of fictional world-building going on, like they sound like they came from another world. They sound like uh, they're, you know, they're bound by boundaries that nobody else has even thought of. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what got my attention about them. Uh, you know, once when I got into them, it was kind of like late 90s kind of or early 2000s. And, and uh, but, you know, I, of course, did backtrack from there and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, since since they've been around and since RZA has been around, you know, I imagine there was nothing like that at the time when they first came out and, and definitely not after that either. So that was always something that I really, you know, caught my attention about about that whole sound. Clams, there was a time when if you were a hip-hop producer, there was pretty much two ways to get on. One was uh, you had a buddy that was a rapper and that rapper got famous. Uh, one was... You just made a thousand cassette tapes and went to every club and every party and passed them out. And you hoped that, you know, by the time it got to the person that mattered, your telephone number would still be written on it. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about where you were when you first started getting placements for your beats. Um, I was kind of in doing the same process of that. Um in a different way, more, you know, handing out, like you say, handing out cassette tapes or CDs at parties and on the street, but doing that on the internet. You know, I first started getting serious about getting my music heard. I started taking it seriously in about 2007. Um, so I used I used MySpace at the time. That was the biggest kind of platform, um, easiest way. A lot of uh, rappers and artists, uh, music Musical artists had MySpace pages if they, you know, if they ran them, their management ran them or if they ran them themselves. So I would just send out messages to all these pages and MySpace pages of artists and ask them for emails to send to send beats to and say, you know, some of them would, I would say probably one out of, I don't know how many would respond, one out of 
10, one out of 20, you know, it's always different, but it was definitely just a numbers game and just trying to get as many emails addresses as I could, um, and just sending messages out all the time. And then I just building up a big list of email addresses that we had acquired. And then every time I made a new beat that I would just go down it and see who it may work for. And then just kind of shoot things off into the internet and, and see whatever came back. What was the first time that it worked? The first kind of song, uh, there's a rapper, um, a rapper from Brooklyn named Shah Stimuli that I had heard of for the first time in about 2004. He, they were playing his song on the radio uh, in New York on like Hot 97. I heard that, so and I downloaded that a few years before that. So I, I had heard of him, and, and he was the first one that was like responded and, and actually used one of my beats and shouted me out on it, said my name on it, and, and that was a big deal because that was, the, that was the first time I had worked with somebody that I had heard of and, and actually listened to as a fan a few years before that. So that's kind of what actually, you know, pushed me to keep going. Did you get paid? No. <laughs> this, is, this is a long way from getting paid. This is about you know, a few years before that. So I feel like I read, you know, one of your first... Uh... Uh, one of your first big placements was with Havoc of Mob Deep. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I read in an interview somewhere that you found out that he had made that song when the song came out. Uh, yeah, uh, that that happens a lot it's in the you know internet age um, of just, well, me sending stuff out. And in my case, you know, uh, I would, I would make a beat, sit down and, and, once you know, once I looked at lists, I would send it out to maybe twenty people at one time because I don't, I wouldn't really expect any of them to respond. So, so you know, the the music is out there somewhere. Somebody may check their check their inbox you know, six months later, a year later, and that yeah, I, that actually happened. You know, probably about over almost two years after um, I had sent the beat to Havoc's manager or somebody that he knew, but it was it was never for him. It was for somebody else. It was just like a crazy kind of situation that he just had heard it somehow and it came out. And then I was like, whoa, whoa wait, hold on. That's my beat. So <laughs> you literally had to kind of like come up with a strategy for what do I do when I sent out a bunch of my beats and then I hear one of them on somebody's song or somebody's freestyle, but my name isn't attached to it, right? Uh, yeah, and that's another thing that I knew that I had to do was attach my name to anywhere that I could. So any any time it was posted up, if a song had went up on YouTube or or any kind of social media um, outlet, I would I would really be on top of that, always checking and any anywhere I could write the title the title of the song or the name of the artist and put produced by me on it. I had to do that, and I was really. You know that was a really big part of getting my getting my name attached to all the music because the artists weren't doing it. Um, maybe every once in a while they would, if you know, I would say, "Oh, can you shout me out, say my name on it," and they would do that every once in a while. But for the most part, the artists are not doing that. So I knew I had to do that myself, and um, you know, really be conscious of staying on top of that, attaching my name to all this stuff. So and it paid off eventually, but it was you know, I, I definitely was a big part of of. Uh, of the whole process. Was it hard not to be bitter about that? Um, no, I never felt like that. No, I, I mean, I always just felt like, uh, I was paying my dues, you know, I, I was just, I was just working and I never, I never expected to get paid, especially right away. I was just doing stuff to, to get it out there. And, and I knew that, um, you know, eventually if it, if it was meant to work out, it would work out, but I never felt bitter or anything. Uh, about that, I just knew I had to work hard at you know what I what I wanted. To, I knew what I wanted to do, and and knew I had to to put the work in to do it. So I yeah, I never really felt like that or felt any way towards artists for the most part. After a break, I'll talk to Clams Casino about working with some of the most gifted rappers in hip hop. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from iTunes Movies with the Sundance hit Sing Street from the filmmaker behind Once. Sing Street transports viewers to 80s Dublin as seen through the eyes of 14-year-old Connor, a schoolboy who starts a band to win his crush's heart. Steeped in the vibrant rock trends of that decade and inspired by director John Carney's own life, 
Sing Street is an invigorating reminder that music can transcend the turmoil of everyday life and transform us into something greater. Sing Street is available July 12th exclusively on iTunes. Hey, Bullseye listeners, it's me, Jesse. Uh, MaximumFun.org, the organization that produces Bullseye, is currently hiring for a production fellow here at our Los Angeles office. Come and work with us and make all kinds of things, not least of which is Bullseye. The position is full-time and paid, and it's best for folks who are, you know, recently out of college or just transitioning into work in the world of audio or something along those lines. Uh, you can find more information about the job at MaximumFun.org slash fellowship. That's MaximumFun.org slash fellowship. And if you know somebody or if you yourself want to apply, please do it quick. You've got about a week. Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Clams Casino, whose debut album, 32 Levels, comes out this month. I want to play the song that in some ways made your reputation. It's a Lil B song that you produced called I'm God. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could tell me how you hooked up with Lil B, who's a rapper from, you know, 3,000 miles away from where you're from, a a totally a world away, and Mm -hmm. um, how you ended up having a collaboration with him that has lasted to this day. He's, He's all over your new record. How did that come about? Um, the same process that I was just saying uh, through MySpace. I, I was a fan of him. Who he was in a group called the Pack, and I was a bit just a big fan of theirs. So I was in the process of doing all the MySpace, you know, getting emails and stuff. He had answered me. He would run his own MySpace page, and he gave me an email um, address to send beats to. So I, I just started sending stuff through there, and then that was, I guess, kind of like a dummy account. Because after a few, and I sent a few things out, and then he was like, would answer after a couple of weeks or something, be like, "Oh, I like this one. Here's here's another email address." So I guess one that he would check more or something, and that was like kind of, <laughs> you know, even like maybe his more personal one or something. So once I got that second email address, I was like, "Okay, now I'm de- I'm I'm getting in a little a little closer." And then um, that was, you know, then we started doing things. Um, at that same time, wasn't wasn't Lil B doing that same thing with MySpace accounts? Didn't he have like seventy five MySpace yeah. accounts at one point? Yeah, he yeah, uh, well, yeah, he. Did, I think he ended up having like a few hundred or something. Uh, he would just put you know five or six songs on each, and he was just making new pages. And that I first, I think the first song that I ever did with him was just like a freestyle um, that was on like page number thirty four or something, and that was like. Uh, that was the first thing that we did, but but I, my goal was always to get one. He, you know, he would have his own main page with only one song on it at a time. So like, I was always just, you know, and I'm God was actually the first one that went on that main page with the one song, and that was a really big uh, deal for me. So, at what point did you actually, in real life, meet Lil B? The first time I actually saw him in person was when we had done a show, and. And I I saw him in the hallway right before he went on stage. So that was like the first kind of interaction that we actually had in person. But it was just really just a handshake and on his way out to the stage. And and that was it. So we didn't really actually properly hang out and and speak, you know, in person until last year, which is the recording of these songs from my album. It's crazy to think that somebody who who changed your life so much and with whom you've worked so closely uh was also in some ways kind of a stranger to you Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um yeah we have been working for so long before that on just over the internet we we had started working in 2008 so you know the first time we actually met was was you know the first time we actually sat down together and like spoke and that was only about a year ago i think it was july of last year 2015 so uh, we had met up in the studio to to work on this stuff, and you know we just booked three days. And the first day, he just flew in from the Bay Area. We were in LA. Uh, we flew him down there, and uh, yeah, the first day we just kind of caught up, you know. And it was just a weird feeling, like somebody that you worked with for so long, but yeah, definitely still feel like a stranger too. And then once we got into it, you know, everything felt natural, and we just we started making music that first night. But I didn't know what to expect, you know, and. Um, so that was that was a definitely a, a weird feeling. 
Let's take a listen to it. This is Little B and I'm God, produced by my guest, Clams Casino. If this what you really want, you got me in the flesh now. No, I'm not stressed out. I'm God, I'm the best out. Rap transparent, my seat through glasses, incoherent. And no, I'm not staring. I just seek through you. And from your heartbeat, you were soft in the middle. I'm real on the outside, solid on the inside. This nips the west side. That uh, song was built around a vocal sample. Can you tell me how that vocal sample came into your life? A friend of mine had sent over... Um, a song by the artist, the same artist, Imogen Heap. It wasn't that song, but a friend of mine had sent, had just emailed me a, a different song by her, and I had never heard of her before. Um, so he was like, "Oh, you got to sample this. Check out this. Check out the vocals on this track." And um, so I had like listened to it. I, m- I might have tried to to flip that sample and maybe didn't have any luck with it or something. And then um, how I found the song that ended up to be that uh, sampled in I'm God was just, uh, I just had searched her name uh, for more for more songs after that one. So I, I had just found it on my own after a friend had recommended um, her song. What did you like about it? I always have been attracted to vocal sample things. So um, anything with, with vocals in them, um, I don't even know why. It's just I kind of had realized that after a while. I was like, oh, you know, anything I do is just happens to have a vocal thing in it. So... Um, yeah, it's, that's kind of hard to say. It's not something that I'm really conscious about when I, I, I just kind of start making stuff. I, I just will pull up anything and then just through the process, if something comes out of it, then it does. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to, to, to talk about the process because I really don't know what I, what I first heard in it or anything. Uh, all I know is I just, you know, I discovered after a while that I was just without really realizing it, using a lot of samples of, of vocals. Um, I want to play another relatively recent song of yours. Um, This is a song that you produced for uh, Vince Staples uh, that ended up coming out on Vince Staples' record called uh, North North. Shit, you thirsty, please grab Sprite. My crib's lurking, don't die tonight. I just want to dance with you, baby. Just don't move too fast, I'm too crazy. Man, down, down the avenue, get shaded. Take a million nine off that. We can dip up in the whip, slide right back in the function. One wrong word, start busting. Put that on my Yankee hat. I'm a gangster. You know, in some ways, that song sounds to me like a halfway point between. Um, that kind of ins- uh, that kind of um, atmospheric uh, New York hip hop that you loved, and the kind of sounds that were coming out of um, especially the Bay Area, but uh, California generally, mm-hmm. um, you know, the sounds that birthed among other people L- uh, Lil B's career. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the kind of beats that Young L was making for the Pack, um, those snaps and stuff. You know, has that been an important sound in your career as well? Yeah, that's one of the biggest one of the biggest influences too. Um, you know, the kind of Bay Area sound, um, probably just as big as the you know the New York stuff that we were discussing earlier. Um, it's a huge part of this this stuff that inspired me. You know, it's uh, yeah, and and it's funny that you mentioned that 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 does feel like kind of both you know in the middle of those zones, which you know I hadn't really thought about, especially while I was making it. But you can definitely hear both of those sides coming out in in that beat. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Clams Casino, whose debut album, 32 Levels, comes out this month. One of the interesting things is that kind of music that came out of the Bay, and when it was coming out of the Bay, I lived there, I'm from there. Mm. Um, You know, that's dance music in a way that those, you know, Wu-Tang Clan records almost never were, you know? Mm. I mean, there's, you can dance to a Wu-Tang Clan record, but that's not what it was made for. Right, right. Um, and uh, I wonder if you think about uh, if you think about what your song is going to sound like, not just on somebody's headphones when they're cruising around on SoundCloud, uh, but what it's going to sound like if it 
comes on after a Drake song on the giant sound system of a club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I don't think about that too much actually. Uh, I guess because I don't, I don't do too many live shows or performances. I, I think if I did more of that, I would I would be a lot more you know conscious of how is it going to sound in a in a setting like that. But um, I really don't think about that. I just kind of. Uh, I know how it's going to sound loud because I play it loud. So that's that's definitely a thing that I think about. But, uh, yeah, not like in a kind of a club or live setting. I think just because I'm not really involved in too too much in those in those worlds. So why aren't you? Oh, I just never I, I like to be behind the scenes for the most part. I never really wanted to be, you know, an artist. I, I started making music to be a producer and but be behind the scenes and produce for other artists. And when my instrumental you know music and beats that i made for for rappers and started getting around to people that just wanted to hear the instrumentals and you know i i got a i built a whole following of you know people that like electronic music and and don't care about the the vocals so i was just opened up to that whole world as like an electronic artist but that was never my intention so um yeah i just i mean that's just what i like to do but and and i do you know i like to keep fans happy that want to hear that stuff so I definitely like try to keep both of those worlds going, but I never considered myself as an artist, really. You gonna go get that electronic music festival money? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I still, I do, I do shows, um, you know, every once in a while, and and especially around the out, you know, this album release, uh, you know, I'll be doing more. But as uh, I, I get more, as I kind of build it up a little bit and get more involved with with the show and and also visually and have you know having having good visuals that work with the music i think is really important so it took me a while to kind of work that out but but as i'm working that out i it, you know it, it i'm a lot more interested in it so well clams you know i'm i'm so glad for your success and i'm so grateful that you took the time to come beyond bullseye no problem thank you very much for having me Clams Casino's new album, 32 Levels, featuring Vince Staples, Lil B, ASAP Rocky, and many others, comes out July 15th. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. The beach is cold. In San Francisco. That's where I'm from. It's cold and foggy, and the best thing there is this old windmill. And the beach is too hot in Los Angeles. That's where I live now. It's hot and sweaty, and the water's no good. Besides all that, I just watch Jaws, and so I don't like the ocean, and I don't think I'll start. As much as anything else, Jaws is famous for changing movie going. In 1975, event movies had sort of been discredited. They went out with It's a Mad Mad World or whatever. There was great cinema, but there weren't blockbusters like we have now. Movies still ran for months in one-screen theaters, subdivided movie palaces in some places. Until that summer, summer 1975, when Jaws swept away everything. Two years later, there was Star Wars, and there was all of a sudden one way to make a movie in Hollywood. Big. Here's the thing. These days, 2016, you can open a movie huge if you've got a brand, you know, something people are familiar with, Transformers or whatever, and maybe some element that people haven't seen before, the White House getting blown up, and then a ton of marketing. But people in 1975 didn't line up to see Jaws because a bunch of money told them to. They lined up to see Jaws because Jaws is awesome. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. 
You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. It's two movies, really. For about 45 minutes, it sort of builds up. There are these little moments. A kid shooting sharks in an arcade game. A boy in a boat. A toddler crying on the shore. And then there are a few punctuations. Blood in the water. A leg sinking. That fin. They're terrifying. Not entirely novel, especially if you watch them now, 40 years later, when they've been copied and parodied a billion times. But they work. Everybody out of the water, you know? What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks. And that's all. Now, why don't you take a long, close look at this sign? Those proportions are correct. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. If you've never seen Jaws, then what you don't expect is that there's this other movie, too. Our hero sort of is the chief of police. He moved to the beach from New York, even though he's afraid of drowning, basically because he was tired of fighting. He's good and brave, but he's not so good or so brave that he feels better than you. I mean, he basically seems like a regular guy with a lot of resolve. And then there's Richard Dreyfus, shark guy. Charming, surprisingly handsome, a little bit poindexter. And the captain. The captain is just this pile of cliches that is played with such charm and such remarkable conviction. It's just a joy to watch. Well, nope, no, listen, I don't know about that, but I entered an arm wrestling contest in Loki Bar in San Francisco. You see this? No, I can't extend that. You know why? Got to the semifinal, celebrating my third wife's demise. Big Chinese fella, he pulled me right off. It's a bull shark. He scraped me when I was taking samples. I got something for you. That's the thresher. You see that? Chief Thresher's tail. Thresher? It's a shark. You want a drink? Drink to your leg? I'll drink to your leg. Okay, so we drink to our legs. <laughs> so, three men on this sinking boat trying to catch one big shark. And the action just plays in circles, concentric circles, getting smaller. The ocean's starting to feel like a trap. It starts to feel like it's pulling you down. They're shooting out these lines, you know, cables, fishing lines, ropes, whatever. One end is harpooned to that shark, one end tied to that bobbing barrel. And they start to feel like they're tightening around your ankle or maybe your thigh. And the floor underneath you is feeling uncertain and you're not sure if you're getting pulled under. And then when someone dies, you feel it in your gut, even though you know it's the same stupid rubber robot from the Universal Studios tour with pistons instead of muscles, and those teeth are fake, and all of that, you still take a punch. The enormous amount of tissue loss prevents any detailed analysis. However, the attacking squalus must be considerably larger than any normal squalus found in these waters. Didn't you get on a boat and check out these waters? No. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. And that's why they lined up in 1975, for months on end, at single-screen theaters and subdivided movie palaces, all summer and beyond. Because Jaws is incredible. So, anyway, yeah. I don't much like the ocean. That's my outshot. Roy Scheider. Robert Shaw. Richard Dreyfus. Jaws. See it before you go swimming. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci. Our production assistant, Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. And this is the very last week 
for Maximum Funds Production Fellow Ibadianex Borello. Uh, our thanks to Ibadianex uh, for his incredible year of work with us. We are so grateful to him. Um, if you want to keep up with Ibadianex's great work outside of Maximum Fund, he hosts a photography podcast called The Candid Frame that I really highly recommend, especially if you're interested in photography like I am. He's just a really thoughtful, sensitive guy who goes in-depth with photographers with amazing stories on that show. And yeah, so thank you, Obadianex, uh, for a great year. All our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks to our pals at NPR in New York for their engineering help on the Clamps Casino interview. If you want to hear any of our past shows, all of them are listenable to by you for free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. That's our website. And click on Bullseye. Uh, or pull up Bullseye in your favorite podcasting software. Tons of old episodes, lots of great interviews. And by the way, if Bullseye isn't enough for you, or if you wish Bullseye was a little less interviewee and a little more analysis and chatty, check out our sister show. It's called Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. Your host is Guy Branham, one of the most insightful and hilarious dudes that I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. Uh, and there's a great panel as well. This week, they'll be talking about pop culture in the two other countries in North America. That's Canada and Mexico, if you're keeping track. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.